Welcome to episode 112. Thank you for joining us. This week, I sit down with Colonel Eric Ferris Buer, former Cobra pilot and author of the book Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps Gunships on the Opening Days of the Iraq War. As the title suggests, his book looks at the war in Iraq from 2003 to 2004 from the perspective of a Cobra pilot supporting troops on the ground. I really found his perspective interesting because most of the narratives coming out of the long war have either been from the ground or from fixed-wing aviators. I'm embarrassed to admit that his point of view from the cockpit was a perspective from our operations during the long war that I hadn't considered, especially considering that in many ways I owe my current existence to the actions of rotary wing close air support. Being that he and his rotary wing brethren are so inextricably linked to ground maneuver and thus exposed to a threat level, and quite frankly, a grit level, that many of the fixed wing community are not, his experiences and views on the war are fascinating. Here is episode 112. Enjoy. Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners. Welcome back. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Uh, I am Vic, and today I am really excited to be welcoming Colonel Eric Ferris Buer to the show. Uh, Colonel Buer is um, a Cobra pilot, and we don't have a lot of pilots on the show. Um, and he is the author of the book Ghosts of Baghdad, um, a really fantastic memoir um, looking back on his time as a, a gunship pilot during the invasion OIF-1. And uh, it's a perspective that we don't have enough on this show. Uh, you know, as ground pounders, we love to talk about swinging with the wing. But, uh, you know, today I'm all about the swing because his perspectives from the air, um, you know, so interesting having been on the ground during the invasion. Um, you know, I was so sort of myopically focused on what was going on. I really hadn't considered all of the things that the pilots who were, you know, essentially keeping us alive many of the times, um, what they were going through, what their experiences were. So the Ghosts of Baghdad was really a great exploration of that. So anyways, with all that, sir, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Vic. It's, it's great to be here. It's great to be with the listeners this morning. And, and sir, so um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, be as, uh, as brief or as long-winded as you want, but really would like to hear your story on um, what your path to the Yellow Footprints was, uh, you know, where you're from, what your thoughts were, you know, as a young man about the Marine Corps and then what eventually, you know, brought you into the cockpit? You know, it's, um, you know, I think my story is no different than, you know, the tens of thousands of us in our kind of, you know, year groups that made the same decisions and choices. You know, I, at the time I was a, originally from San Francisco and I was going to college uh, in Ohio. You know, and I was already thinking about what's the next step in my life? Where am I going to be? What am I going to do? And, you know, so many of the, the folks I was surrounded by, they're, they're going to be New York City stockbrokers and all these things. And, you know, I just knew that was not going to be for me. And and by hook or by crook, you know, I found my way into a recruiting office in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And, uh, you know, I walked into one of those silver tongue doubles, you know, called a recruiter. And, uh <laughs> You know, it's, and, uh, you know, we, he sat me down and we, and we talked and he's, you know, he just gave me his pitch and, uh, and I said, well, this sounds, this sounds, you know, pretty inviting. And so, you know, I came back a couple of days later, as we all do, I threw on some PT gear, did some pull-ups or push-ups or sit-ups or whatever we did back in the day and went for a run. And, you know, in that next, next early next summer, I was, uh, I was in Quantico, Virginia, wondering what I'd signed up for <laughs> yeah like i thought i was just gonna pt yeah, right. there's no condos this is uh this is, yeah. so so that's really well you know that's how it, it really began for me and then you know the deeper you get into an organization i've always liked to think i've kept a pretty pretty positive outlook on on things um you know as i deeper i got in i you know he, he talked about aviation and here's a chance you can go fly and and I, I just took every opportunity they gave me, I took, um, and, you know, it's your typical, you know, typical C plus student forced to do, you know, B work. Um, 
and you grind through. And I was, you know, fortunate enough to go to flight training and, and, and fortunate enough to get through flight training. Uh, and then I worked my way into the cockpit of a Cobra, which, uh, which was, you know, really a dream come true. So that, that was my, gr yeah. Grunts of the year, right? So isn't that, that what they say about Cobra pilots? Yeah, you know, it's uh, there's really no one closer in my mind. There's no one really kind of understands. You know, you know, we we live and breathe with commander's intent. We live and breathe with your scheme of maneuver, and uh, you know, we try to get as much information as we possibly can. And uh, you know, as you'll soon find out, you know, we we have a, a deep appreciation, and it's, it's really a, you know, it, it's more than that. It's 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 really a, this connection between us and our and our and our Marines flighting on the ground that we 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 felt, you know, a massive obligation to. Um, if you mind, uh, just backing up a little bit, sir. So San Fran, Ohio, that seems like a, uh, I mean, of all of the culture shifts that Marines go through, uh, that one seemed pretty drastic at a young age. Were you a, were you an athlete? So I was a very, very subpar athlete. Thank you for bringing that up, Vic. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so we do here. So we 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 pick at scabs. <laughs> no, no, I was a lacrosse player. I grew up. Uh, I actually gone to school in in New Hampshire, um, and so I picked up. You know, uh, I played my whole life. I was a hockey player, I was a lacrosse player, and then I decided to go to college and play lacrosse. And uh, that was what initially brought me to Ohio, and so. Um, that, that's that's a good point. Uh, that that's a you know I went from one coast to the other to kind of in the middle. Uh, but that school was a great fit for me. You know it was a great opportunity for me to meet lifelong friends. Um, to, you know compete at, in, in in sports for four years, which which keeps you disciplined, which keeps you focused, which keeps you fit, which is great. Um, and then you know it was I, I didn't believe I was going to have a a career in Ohio or anywhere else. I just you know went, again once I once I had an opportunity to talk to that recruiter, I think uh, a die had been cast for kind of a lack of better terms. Yeah, that seems like a pretty common refrain um, from college athletes that there's this sense of like a real appreciation for getting that four more years of, like you said, so that discipline, that schedule, um, that camaraderie uh, that, you know, comes with most um extracurricular sports you know uh varsity level stuff and then there's almost a um uh, you know reading of the tea leaves where you're like this is going away and i don't want it to um and i think a lot of i don't does that does that resonate with you sir it does you know there there, there is a great sense of you know a fraternity or sorority there's that great sense of you know which we talked i talked to marines about a lot you know that sense of family and, and teamwork that you don't really get anywhere else. Um, and so that, that really, it, it was different, but it was familiar in so many ways to me, um, particularly as time went on the Marine Corps. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm just guessing then, um, you know, as a lax guy, um, did you ever, you know, in those moments where, did you ever look up at the sky and go, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be up there. Or was it like you, kind of articulated more along the lines of as these opportunities are presenting themselves, I'm, I'm just going to jump on it. Well, you know, as a, you know, as a kid, I, I always had a fascination with aviation. And so that was one of the draws. Um, again, back to a recruiter, we talk about, hey, there's this incredible challenge and kind of responsibility of being a Marine, and in particular being a Marine officer, and then an opportunity to fly uh, and do both. And again, that was really the that was really the the glue that sealed the deal was that hey you can do both, uh, and I didn't even really know at the time what type of aircraft we had. I on a cursory look I kind of knew what, what the Marine Corps flew, but it really didn't matter. I, I I knew I had this kind of love of aviation. I didn't exactly know why, um, but again the two coming together seemed like uh, seemed like something that would work for me. And then, um, so you went to OCS. Were you uh, a PLC, OCC, junior, seniors? P PL, you know, so my, my first step out of that bus was in uh, lovely Camp Upshur, uh, which uh, literally seemed like you stepped back into the 1950s. Um, <laughs> sure. Right into the train tracks. <laughs> it was unbelievable. You know, and I, that's when I was saying there's, I don't know, there was 20 Quonset huts and, and some... Uh, 
some very cantankerous men yelling at me, you know, <laughs> to do things that I wasn't sure what they wanted me to do or how to do. Uh, but, you know, interestingly enough, a couple of those, a uh, couple of those senior drill instructors, they, they became, became gunners and they became, you know, uh, kind of mentors to me who I deployed with over the years. But yeah, it started out, I was a PLC guy and went out to Camp Upshire and, uh, and uh, you know, you're right. It was a great opportunity to, to just, forget the rest of the world and focus on uh, what, you know, of course they wanted me to focus on for those, for those weeks. Um, yeah. Then making yeah, the decision. most important, most important thing was like what flag is going up in the morning, right? <laughs> like, oh yeah. yeah although I, <laughs> you know, I just remember the runs through those trails and uh, it was, I mean, I, you know, I look back and of course we always look back a little bit different, but I, I enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed PLC juniors. And, and for the most part, uh, when I went back the next, uh, next summer, um, I went back the next summer this time, of course, on the main side in Quantico and, and, uh, you know, got to, you know, run a new set of trails. Yeah. <laughs> so that part's great. Um, so when did you, when did you take the flight test? Was it after juniors when back at your, uh, Oso's office or were you already commissioned? So I took the, I went through the flight. Uh, I had a flight com a contract. Um, I think I did that, you know, the first couple of times in my Oso's office. So I had a flight contract okay. going to the basic school. Uh, I had a flight contract. I guess in theory, I had a flight contract going to OCS, but I didn't really recall it as a thing. Uh, but I, I, I knew I was listed as a flight contract when I, when I finally got to the basic school. Okay, very cool. Uh, yeah. um, so then, um, yeah. So you know, one of the interesting things that we've been exploring, obviously, um, you know, talent management, twenty thirty is you know real paradigm shift. Um, and I thought it was a very bold maneuver for uh, Marine Corps leadership to acknowledge um, not just the great power competition um, when it, you know we're looking at you know geopolitical, uh, but you know within domestically you know in our competition with industry, um, and there's so much uh, so many things that are changing that seem pretty obvious. Uh, common sense approaches, but I, I think in our new efforts to retain talent, um, we're we're looking at some things that, again, I think I think seem fairly obvious, but they're going to be new and it's going to be a culture change. And I think one of them that's been explored here at the Gazette has been this idea of what do you do with pilots who are just in a holding pattern, uh, you know, awaiting training. Um, did you run into that as you were, um, leaving TBS? Uh, you know, what, what was your experiences like, um, going from Quantico to Pensacola? Interesting. So I, I took a break, um, and I was on the U S pentathlon, the military pentathlon team for probably six, eight months, six months anyway. So I'd left there. I tried out, I made the Marine team and then I went to Texas and we, we made a, the U S team a couple of us and then i you know we traveled to europe and competed um so when i finally got back to the basic school you know my 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 class was all gone uh and so i you know i got orders right down there and i checked into pensacola and they they put me you know they put me right right into training which was nice there, there's always pools you know the the pig and the snake is difficult i had to manage that process it, it, i didn't have to manage it i was responsible for portions of that process uh when i when i was in pensacola on my last my last tour uh but yeah it's always it's always a challenge it's always a challenge with demand and and uh it's always hard to predict the number of you know marines who are going to leave uh aviators in particular who are going to leave the service after their first tour is what incentivizes them to stay in uh, the marine corps compressed some platforms and compressed some mission sets and that that drives to an excess of aviators and that that drives the demand down and you know, the flash to bang is always slow. It's a very imperfect process. Um, yeah. So I empathize with it. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's nothing new. It, it's nothing new. I, I tell you a, a quick story. I was in the, I was in Quantico as a captain going through the amphibious warfare school when I was writing the paper and I found some, I was in the aviation section, of course, and I found this little pamphlet and I was reading it. And this was, I was the, uh, this was 1990 six probably i was at amphibious warfare school 
And the pamphlet was about the loss of aviators and the Marine Corps had been giving bonuses to them. And then, uh, you know, the aviation world and commercial world was in such high demand that the Marine Corps continued to hemorrhage pilots. And there was a cycle of losing pilots and having to recruit more and stoppages. And I, I flipped the primer over and it was written in 1954. Shit <laughs> <So> out of here. <laughs> I was like, wow. And, uh, you know, we've seen that cycle through the early 90s, certainly through post 9-11. Uh, we've seen it most recently. Uh, so it, it's a cycle that goes through. And I know there's there's folks that get their advanced degrees in manpower and, and analytics. And, you know, I, don't, I think it's a very difficult, uh, it's a very difficult, uh, you know, a manpower issue because there's so many variables involved in it. Um, but, you know, I don't think the Marine Corps has gone any way from man, manned aircraft in our lifetime. They may be uh, a, por a portion of it, but um, I, I don't know that's going to be the case. Well, yeah, I think your book, uh, and, you know, granted, uh, most of the events, well, I guess all of the events in this book take place, you know, almost, you know, over two decades ago, uh, or I guess exactly two, almost exactly two decades ago. But um, the stuff that you highlight in here, I think, really um, reinforces that idea that um, unmanned aircraft, unmanned vehicles are definitely a force multiplier, but they can't be the core of our um, of our arsenal for many of the things um, that you sort of highlight here uh, in Ghosts of Baghdad. Uh, but before we do get in your book, which I definitely want to jump into, so I don't want to take too much of your time here, sir, but um, you talk about walking into the recruiter's office. Um, was there any idea, like, as you were going through the sort of initial phases of, you know, taking the flight exam and things of like maybe looking at the Navy, the Air Force as a potential option for flying, or were you always going to just stay green? You know, I didn't really look at the other services. I, I you know, as the Marine Corps, I don't, I was just drawn in there, just the way it worked. Uh, I was drawn into that, into that office and uh, I haven't talked to the, the OSO, by the way, who was a, who was a Cobra pilot. <laughs> no, no kidding. <laughs> Funny. Yeah. Cobra pilot, and he was very, he was very, uh, very, uh, uh, gave a very compelling story. I never, that was it. I, I didn't leave there. I didn't ever feel a need to go anywhere else. So, I, no, I never considered going anywhere else. Nice. Well, appreciate your uh, your loyalty, sir. <laughs> oh, brand loyalty early on. I know. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, this book, uh, Ghosts of Baghdad, really uh, fantastic sort of, again, a view that I, the perspective of the of the invasion that I hadn't really, uh, embarrassingly so, I hadn't really even considered. It was just so uh, focused on sort of what was going on to the left and right of me. Um, but this is a fairly recent book. I mean, it came out this year, correct? It did. And so what made you 20 years? Is it because it's been 20 years? Or what was sort of the impetus behind um, this book being produced? Yeah. You know, it, it always it had been in the back of my head uh, for a while. Um, you know, the problem with 2003, it led to going back in 2004 and going to back in 2005. So right. I didn't really have you know, deployments after that. So it wasn't like we had a lot of time to 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 really to, to think about it. Um, but I had thought about it, and and as as time going by, um, I knew the story needed to be told. I mean, we're we're a terribly, terribly proud and humble service, and uh, we always are. We always have been, and we're always hesitant to tell our stories, uh, and particularly about the people we serve with. And and I thought about it, and, and I talked to some close friends um, who were there with me, and I interviewed them, and I asked them questions, and I shared some stories, and I was blown away about their reaction. So, in one way, very selfishly. Uh, I, I was, you know, I was given hundreds of hours with old friends to, to rehash, you know, kind of old memories. And I didn't want it to be 50 years. Uh, I didn't need it to be, you know, Band of Brothers. I would never compare this to Band of Brothers. That's a, you know, that's clearly an iconic um, book and the, the story is incredible. Um, but I, I needed to tell their stories and, uh, and I needed, I also felt that it needed to be told by someone who was there. You know, I can who could talk to them and we could together, we could, we could remember the smells, we could remember the sounds, we could remember the voices. 
You know, you can almost, you can get it, you can taste that sand, right? There's like that humidity and that dankness. Um, and you talk to people and you, and you, you, you listen to them to tell their stories and you, you understand that. And so I had an opportunity to reconnect with my co-pilot, my wingman, his co-pilot, my COs, XOs, air group commanders, crew chiefs, dozens of others on the air and in the ground, right? So it was great talking to infantry friends of mine and get their perspectives. And so, you know, after I had that, it really, it really, the book, you know, within reason, it wrote itself and that made it easy and that made it fun and it made it very satisfying. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. There's so many um, instances where I think back and like, oh, I was there or I remember when that happened. Um, one of the things that you uh, you know, you take a, a really deep dive into and that I really appreciated was your experiences in um, Nazaria. You know, for me, uh, I remember seeing that army convoy just go zooming past us in the cordon and like, who the fuck is like? First, my first thought is, are we going in? And then it was like, who the fuck are those guys? And then, you know, we stayed out in the cordon, and then we just kept going. Um, after you know, Task Force Terrible went in and all of that stuff, we moved on. Um, but you were there operating for days. Um, what was it about Nazaria that you felt um, compelled to dedicate so much of the book to? It was, you know, I had, uh, I was flying out of New River. So I'm an East Coast guy, I've been an East Coast guy uh, for, you know, for the vast majority of my career. And so, you know, I had a, you know, Task Force Tara was led by, you know, General Natansky, who I'd gone to Somalia with 10 years earlier. And uh, I'd known him and we'd stayed in touch over the years. And in the battalions, at first battalion, second Marines, I, you know, I'd, friends that were, you know, at this time, exos and opsos. And, you know, I lived in, I lived in, 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 uh, in Jacksonville. I knew some of the company commanders and, you know, that were neighbors of mine. And so you, you had this attachment to them, whether you wanted to really accept it or not. And then and by the time we got into this, by the time we got into the city, um, it was late on the, the when we really had, you know, the, the, the real issues in Nazaria early on in, in March. Um, you know, you, you could see the you know, destruction and the devastation. And so, um, it was, it would, for us, it was our, our first time really doing a significant, significant amount of close air support. I mean, very close air support. And so it was, everything was very new to us. And we, you know, we cut our teeth a lot of ways. And as a leader, I made more mistakes than I ever made good decisions. And then you just find a way to recover. And, uh, and I had great, you know, I got a young captain. Um, and, you know, two captains in my, as my wingman, and, you know, I was a pretty senior major at the time. Um, I would, had been selected for lieutenant colonel, but, you know, in the Marine Corps, we call those majors. Um, <laughs> thank goodness. So Nazaria, you know, played a big role for us. And, you know, the 507s going through there, it would, it would play a role later on as, as, as friends of mine had gone back into the city in, in early April to, to rescue and recover those those soldiers, and so it played a big role for all of us. And uh, mm -hmm. um, it was it was important for our squadron. It was important for me. And as I listened to our my pilots and and, and folks I flew with, it was really important for them. So I, I it, it, again, it was it, it was critical that I captured uh, I captured as much of that as I could. Yeah, we've had um, Sergeant Major Justin LaHue on the show a couple times friend of the show um and it would be great honestly uh to get both of you guys in the same room to talk about that um you know because that's where uh he got his uh silver star but um going back so you mentioned um no silver his navy cross i'm so sorry his navy cross um so uh you had mentioned somalia and the title of the book ghosts of baghdad the ghosts the ghost is a reoccurring character and it makes its first appearance for you in Somalia. And it really made me wonder about sort of the nature of the ghost, the origin of the ghost. Um, can you talk a little bit about the ghost and like what it was about Somalia uh, where you know sort of almost intuitively 
that that that's who you're now you know flying with and then sort of the ghost sort uh sort of resurgence then um in uh, 2003 so you know in all honesty i i've been a bottom third tbs aws command and staff or college grad if i'm not i should have been uh but i did you know pick up a few things along the way you know that stuck with me thank Thank goodness to great, great instructors and great professors. But, uh, you know, kidding aside, for me, you know, I, as I, as I was, I took pretty, pretty detailed notes on this deployment, all my deployments. And, uh, now you can take the fog and the friction, the uncertainty and the chance, you know, in aviation, you add, you add machines, right? You add, you add very complex machines. You had weather, you, you had moonless nights and endless deserts for me. And it all manifests itself into something, you know, for me that I, that I could, and that I needed to visualize or at least conceptualize. So to believe there's a ghost out there, it helped me focus. There's always a ghost out there and it would always, you know, then in this, in this case, I or we who I'm flying with could always be preparing for the Kind of the unknown, right? The unimagined, the unpredicted, and so it was. You know, I, I didn't really know at the time, but there was always something in the back of my head gnawing at me. Um, there was something that always caused me to look right or left. Um, I don't know what it was. You know, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth sense. Um, but it wasn't until I sat down and began writing the book that I really realized, you know, kind of what it was, um, who and what the ghost really is. You know, I'll let the readers make their own conclusion. And I don't want to spoil anything. There's, it's no great, uh, there's no great unveil, but the ghost really becomes everything that I think all of us who served in combat, whether it's once, twice, three or four times, it's it's something in the back of our mind. We know there's something out there and maybe it's a combination of all that with the enemy, with an agile thinking enemy. Um, but it, it's something that it's, it always keeps us alert and awake. And so that's you know, really how I saw that's really how I saw the ghost, and it, it certainly morphs over time. And uh, in in my mind, it became something much more real than that. And as you read and you see, and as as the ghost, you know, kind of appears, um, you know, it, it it just leaves nothing but kind of death and destruction in, in the path. So that was really my driver, and it was probably my better way of explaining things. I don't know if I always effectively do that, uh, but I certainly hope I did, and I hope I do. So. But that definitely came off to me is is something more uh, like visceral or uh, personal than like the fog of war. Like it is, it's so sterile when we talk about the fog of war because it's just a principle of warfare, a character of warfare, um, and it's a you know it's a planning factor, not a fog of war. Um, but I think that when you sort of personify it. Um, and anthropomorphize it as this ghost. Um, I think it really does sort of bring home what you're talking about, sir. Is that it's not just uncertainty. There's there is a physical manifestation of it, and it always sucks. <laughs> it's always shitty. Um, yeah, it's usually death and destruction in its wake. You're absolutely right. And you know, as I looked at weather, you you. You lived it, right? You you remember uh, orange mud flying sideways at you, right? You remember the sandstorm. <laughs> it was biblical. That was fucking ridiculous. <laughs> right? Like, how does sand get in the bottom of my M9 magazine? Right? <laughs> yeah. How does it possibly get in there? You know, it's but no, I, I I remember thinking like when it first was happening, like we're so screwed. Like this is the world that these you know, that the Iraqis operate in, they're going to kill us all. And, you know, because we can't see more than two feet in front of us, we're all going to die. And then come to realize like, no, they're not stupid enough to be up in this. We're the only ones suffering. They're all bunkered down. Um, we're just the ones eating literal shit sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, so those are the things that really, you know, drove me. There was so many of the, the so many unknowns, right? So many, so many things were completely, we were completely unprepared for because they're things you can hardly think of that could happen or happen in sequence or happen simultaneously. Um, man, I talk about it a few times and I don't, I won't jump. I'll let you drive the, 
I'll let you drive the train. No, please. Yeah, so I just, you know, we, I'll just talk about the opening night, which is really important for us because it was, you know, it's all this detailed planning. All that for us, it's it's very formal, in, in, you know, Marine Corps planning process type work. Uh, MOTS one level briefs. Our flight leads going across the, uh, the going across the border. In my case, we're a flight of four, going to insert uh, first force onto Saf One Hill, and uh, and almost everything that could go wrong went wrong. I mean, it was the weather you, you couldn't see. We were we were called to go out early. Um, the sun hadn't set. The moon was never going to rise because it was a moonless night. It was a 50-year sandstorm, and we were told we're going to go. So we we hop in and we go. And so I, you know, the, the details of the flight are I lay out I, I lay out you know pretty pretty well in the in the book. Um, and somehow by hook or by crook, you know, we we find our way back. We we go to Safwan and we can't get first force in. It's just helicopter crews are doing everything they can. They just can't land. They can't see. Meanwhile, we're my section. We're engaging targets all over the north and the east of Safwan Hill, and it's very chaotic. And I'm doing this, you know, 50, 60, 70 knots, uh, trying not to lose my wingman. Um, and we really just can't see much of anything. But the point is, we land and we all look at each other, and no one says a word. But we're like, we can, we can never do this again. We can never do this again. We'll never survive another like this. We'll never survive another night. And the next night we went out and flew 13 straight hours. And we did it, you know, the next night, and the next night, and the next night. And you learned that, like, you'd never been here before. You'd never been in a situation like this. But you took little snippets of training. You took little things. You took a little, you know, confident wink from your your, your co-pilot. And uh, you debriefed the heck out of everything. And then... You know, you're like, okay, we got, we, we don't, this, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't a really a choice. These are called, you know, this is a flight schedule. We're going to, we're going to go out and execute it, execute this. It's signed by, signed by our skipper. So and you, you learn real, real early that you were going to do things and be called on to do things that you had never done before. And there was, there was really no book for it. Uh, and that we had training and you rely, certainly rely on your training. But at this point, uh, this is why they pay you. This is why you're. This is why you're paid as a pilot to make these critical decisions. And, and look, some of the dumbest decisions I made were, you know, ensuring we could get out and, and support Marines. It's, it's because that's why we're there. We knew we have to do that. I just want to talk about the opening night because it really had. It was very impactful for all of us. And I, I'm not doing it justice. Um, all the crews that were out there, both East, my squadron and again East Coast squadrons, uh, and then West Coast squadron side of Mag. Mag 39, and then certainly some of the units off the Mew, and you know, we lost aircraft that night. We, you know, I dedicate the book to uh, to the air crews we lost uh, in those first, you know, 25, 26 days. I think we lost a, uh, a 46 on the Afwa Peninsula. You know, so it was. We knew it was. We knew it was bad, and it was probably not going to get a lot better for a while. Yeah, that opening night portion of the book was really interesting to me because I was completely oblivious um, to what was going on. You know, obviously we went in with the ground forces, but you guys have been operating for almost, you know, 12 hours at that point. Um, and we had just heard that, you know, the Safwan Hill thing didn't play out, but um, we, we didn't really know what was going on other than, you know, all of a sudden here's a, you know, you know, like uh, in th the movie 300, you know, it's like they're tomahawks that are blotting out the sun, you know, going overhead. Like, yeah. I guess we're nice. going, we're in our attack, we're in the assault position. I guess we're where this is happening. Um, so, yeah, it was really interesting. And I think it was extremely, um, it was eye opening, I think, for everyone, more so obviously for you guys, right, you know, right there at the, at the tip of the spear. But yeah, I thought that was really cool to uh, get your perspectives on it um, and, and to see sort of the first stages of the invasion through your eyes. Um, so you'd mentioned too, uh, you know, 2004, then 2005, um, in what, you know, seems like, you know, this, it could be something along the lines, you know, same song, different verse. What were some of the things that changed for you um, 
as we went from this, you know, conventional war, mission accomplished, you know, routing the, you know, fourth largest military in the world to now this like deep counterinsurgency fight. What did that mean for you guys? Um, you know, as grunts of the air, I, I, don't, I, I can't imagine a lot of it was very similar, but the ROEs were very different. Uh, you know, can you talk, you sort of talk about the different phases of the wars you experienced them? So the interesting, I mean, the, you know, the interesting, one of the interesting thing about 2003 was, you know, we, you, I'm sure you felt the same way. We, we didn't know there was going to be an end, right? It was, no, it was I, 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 I joke all the time. Like, I remember like, like no shit, like quite literally high-fiving people. Like we got our combat action ribbon, man. We're going to get home. We're going to be the big dogs. Everybody's going to be looking up to us. I went on recruiting duty. Two and a half years later, I come back and, you know, there's Lance Corporal's like three rows deep and I'm sitting there with like my car and a NAM and, and like, like what the fuck happened to the Marine Corps while I was gone? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they went to war and stayed at war. Yeah, they never came back. Yeah, it was amazing. So that was one of the, the, the things I, you know, it's just far as like, you know, we're all Marines, like personal stressors, right? things that people think about and trying to compartmentalize things and try to put put where you are and in, in, into context. That's what made 2003 for me, again, so unique because we didn't know we were going home. We had no idea. You know, we, we when Nazari happened, we turned Muse around. Uh, we started flowing more forces into theater. Um, we, we didn't know when it would end. And for us, by the time... Well, by the time the book ends, where you'll see, I, we, we kind of we knew we knew the war wasn't over. We knew our war was over for now, but we we knew the war was nowhere near from over. Um, and so when I returned in 2004, um, you know things have changed dramatically. Um, you know we, you know we we you know getting some early flights and we were flying into Baghdad, which was like the Emerald City to me, like you just didn't fly there. Um, and uh, no, we we're flying in, you know, these places where you'd, you'd run and escort wounded Marines into, into Baghdad or up into Balad. And so it became much more, it, I hate to say scripted, it became much more organized. Um, there were, there was rules for how to get in and out of places. There was rules for how to fly. We had some more uh, restraints, both restraints and constraints put on us um, that were, some were healthy, some were not as healthy. But the war changed dramatically. You know, we were focused now in, in the triangle, and we were focused uh, between, you know, really the flashpoints of Ramadi and Fallujah. And for me, I'd gone back now as a commander, as lieutenant colonel, and it was, it was really about how do we sustain operations? How do we, how do we make twenty? How do you get twenty-seven helicopters to fly, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, and still have capacity? Right, so we, we need to fly these minimum amount of routes, missions, whether it's route convoy, you know, known escorts, and we do you know really known missions. Right, we have you know, Marine units going to go in here, they're going to kick down doors here, SEALs, force, whoever it is, you know, we're on station or just off station, ready to to come in and support. So it was a different. It was really a, it was a, it was a different kind of war for us. 2003 was a was a, a exceptional amount of freedom. You check in with an air officer, say with Fifth Marines, and he would say, "Hey, can you go up the next 25 miles and and and, and help me?" Um, and we'd say, "Of course we can." 2004, <clears throat> and this of course led into 2005, um, a little more restrictive. You know, you, you can't roll in hot. Um, you know, with a couple of 19-shot pods of rockets into downtown Ramadi. You know, doesn't mean we didn't when you had to because it was it was validated. Uh, but it mean it was just a different type of um, different type of uh, uh, restrictions, which was probably again probably healthy in a lot of ways. <clears throat> so the war also gave us, and for me, it gave me Altacatum, right? It gave me a little home base uh, where you knew I was going to be there, uh, and I was going for me. I'd fly nights and uh, have others fly days, and it gave you a sense of uh, you develop a cadence, and you could. Not that we necessarily did it every day, but you could tick off days, right? You knew when you were showing up and you knew when you were going home. Hey, I'm showing up here. I'm going to rip here and I'm going to rip within two weeks, plus or minus. And then you go home and you know when you go back. So that gave everyone, I think for me, it gave everyone a little more sense of normalcy uh, because 
you could plan for things a little bit better. You know, between then and uh, three and four, you know, I packed up my wife, I packed up my four kids. My youngest daughter was born a week after 9-11, right? So my kids have been living this. And so I packed them up and moved them to California. And, and I leave for pretty much the next two years. <laughs> we, we pack up yeah. and we move to Quantico. <laughs> you know, my kids are like, hey, dad, you know, uh, yeah, California was great. Um, why are we moving there again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, no, the, the, for me, the uh, flying's flying and, lead, you know, leading's leading, maintaining aircraft is maintaining aircraft. But the dynamics of the missions uh, certainly change. Now, and we faced tragedy in 2004. We lost a great, you know, a great friend of mine uh, was shot and killed uh, in Fallujah. And, you know, we, you know, it, it happens. We had another aircraft that was shot down with the surf to air missile. The, the, those crews survived. So as the war seemed to simplify, the enemy seemed to get a little more, um, a little more mature in their tactics. Um, did we become more predictable? I don't know. We, we, you know, we have to do certain things, certain ways, uh, safely employ ordinance does that make this predictable probably it does make us predictable uh, in certain senses but i think the enemy got smarter and we began to lose more aircraft uh certainly 2004 five and six we lost you know a, a bunch that i can count on, on i can count on that were marine aircraft that were that were shot down primarily by surface air missiles so the enemy was getting smarter they were understanding our tactics better uh we adapted but you know it's it's we all know great general says, you know, the enemy gets a vote, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, especially in that counterinsurgency fight, I mean, so much of it was just reactionary. You just, you don't know what you don't know. So you just keep doing that thing and then be ready to change it. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it's a gnarly thing. So, sir, what about, so for your book then, as we're talking about, you know, different phases of warfare, um, close air support, flag missions, day to day. Like, who who's who's your audience for this? Was this a book that you wrote? Was it sort of a, a way? A, 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 was it cathartic for you to put all this stuff uh, into a narrative, or were you look? Was there an audience that you want this stuff to reach out to? So. You know, I think I all no, E all of the above. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when I before I wrote it, I, I wrote a pretty detailed um, proposal, and I, I thought about it, and I and I and again I talked to multiple publishers, and publishers had ideas and thoughts, but I went through and tried to answer my big questions of why, kind of the big the five W's, and then who my audience is, and what's my secondary and kind of third audience in mind, and knowing that this is this is a lot of people's story but it's only told through my lens and i can only tell the stories that i saw or see uh and so that's one of the you know kind of regrets i have is i you know i, I really you know, this could have turned into a 1500 page opus you know it could have gone on forever <laughs> um just because there's so many important things but i um i really just wanted to focus on you know these 26 27 days um you know, I, I think every Marine, I, I think every military and aviation enthusiast, you know, friends, families, uncles, brothers, sisters will love to get an idea of what their their niece or nephew or son or daughter or grandson were doing. Um, I, I think they'll get an appreciation of it. it. Does it come with an aviation flair? Of course it does, because you're for 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 good or worse, you're in my cockpit with me. You get you you close the door and we spend the next, you know, six weeks together. 24/7, but I, I, th I think as a core, I, I, th I think you know. Again, I talked to great friends of mine that are either still in active duty or recently left, and they said, you know, Eric, I, I, and I was there, and I, I just never imagined what it was like. I, I didn't know you. I just assumed you guys were, you know, you come up, you, you shoot, you go back, you eat MREs, you, you know, shower. I'm like, I'm like, dude, <laughs> we went back 500 meters and reloaded. Like, we had, there was no yeah. shower. <laughs> no, I, I blame Top Gun. I just blame Top Gun because I had the exact same image in my head. You know, and so very interestingly, I've had some um, friends who are carrier aviators, uh, mostly Navy, uh, from Vietnam era guys to modern day. And they're like, Eric, you know, we just, 
I just never thought about that. Because, you know, we, 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 we take, we launch from the carrier, we come out, we, we have a bombing mission or a strike mission, and it was stressful. And we hit the tanker and we go back and we land and we, you know, we got, we go to Midrats or we, we catch the chow at the carrier. You know, you're on multiple acres of U.S. sovereign U.S. soil. Um, and I'm not, there's no, I'm not wanking about this. This is just our right. reality. It's just, we right. would go half mile behind the enemy and we'd re refuel and rearm and we go back and we do it again. At the end of that day, if we could find our way back to our case, Jaliba, Jaliba, however they pronounce it, which is just South of Talil and Nazaria, that was our, that was our temporary home, which was a, you know, it, it was a sand dirt floor tent with a, with a rack. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, so I think people understood that a little bit better. So, you know, I think, you know, hell, I think every Marine should read it. I'm being selfish, right? I think every Marine, every leader should read it, have an appreciation of what we do. And it's not an appreciation just look at us. It's appreciation that we're all in this together. And this is a team fight. And, uh, and, and that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. But, you yeah. know, I like to, you know, believe all the folks I talked to when I wrote this book and they have talked to me. You know, they appreciate it. In the last audience, I'll tell you, and I've had some pretty emotional exchanges, people emailing me or people I don't know who are either Army pilots or they were Marine H1 you know, pilots or Marine pilots of every flavor who who were either there or in some cases missed it and felt like, you know, this sense of uh, sense of guilt that like that was their like, that's what I was built to do. I spent, you know. 25 years in the Marine Corps, I got out in 19, you know, pick your net, you know, 1998 or 2001. And I, I never did this. I, this, this is what I was built to do. I was purpose built to do this job, which you're talking about. Um, and others, you know, Marine and army guys who were there are like, Hey, I, I've never read a, no one's ever told this story. And I can relate to you as a Marine because we did very similar things in the army. And so, you know, it's, you know, it's not a book of all colors, but I, it, I'd like to think it, it talks to a lot of things that we all value, you know, particularly as Marines, things we all value. Absolutely, sir. I mean, I think a lot of that um, comes through, obviously, not just on the page uh, in your prose, but, you know, in the middle parts here, you have these pictures. And the thing that I really struck me, um, one, was how there's no pictures of just you. Like, this isn't a... Uh, you know, there I was sort of memoir, uh, but also to all of the different like your emphasis, uh, your focus on the unit, um, you know, the HMLA 267, HMM uh, 162. Um, there's all these images of you know what helos do in support of, you know, the ground combat element. I think that 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 also struck me. Um, as you know, a real it really enhances the narrative that you've established here, and that is, you know, as a Marine Corps, you know, it, we really are a air ground task force, and that these two things, we you know, we are inextricably linked, uh, for better or for worse. I agree. You know, I agree, and uh, you know, that's again, that's where I we talked about having an opportunity to talk to so many friends and other folks that served there. You know, I, I you feel an obligation to make sure you tell their story correctly. Um, and you're right. This story is not about me. And again, friends of mine would just tell you, you have to suffer hearing it through my lens. Or, or sometimes, you know, friends have told me they can actually hear my voice as they're reading the book. <laughs> you audible, know? sir. You, you got an audible contract. <laughs> we do have audible. And Ken does a great job. And we have a guy who does audible. He's, he's amazing. Um, but, yeah, that's another story. Uh, well, so this has been really great. Um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, where can uh, our listeners find you? Uh, are you uh, on the socials or do you have a website? Or I do, uh, ericbuer.com. Um, you can go there and you can you can read more and find out more. Uh, certainly on Instagram and Facebook um, and all most social media platforms. Um, got multiple book signings coming up, mostly local, but I, I put those out there. Um, the book's available anywhere. You go, go into Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's available in every format you'd like. You know, certainly as a as a Kindle or a or as an Audible or certainly as a hardcover. Um, but yeah, it's it's available everywhere, and I and I encourage you to give it an opportunity. 
Yeah, I also I, uh, definitely second that, sir. Uh, well, thank you again, sir, so much. Uh, and thank you for writing this book. Um, it was very eye-opening for me. Uh, and, you know, like we've said now a few times on the show, like it's really, it was really interesting um, to get that perspective, uh, you know, from just a couple hundred feet <laughs> above where we were. Um, but yeah, thank you uh, for your service. Thank you for writing this book uh, and thank you for being with us today. Vic, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, you're, you, you're, you're quite humble and I appreciate, uh, I appreciate everything you've done here today. And, and thank you to your readers as well. All right, sir. Have a great day. Thanks, Vic. The Marine Corps requires leaders of all ranks to have a deep understanding of war and the employment of force. MCDP-1 reminds Marines that the military profession is a thinking profession. Every Marine is expected to be a student of the art and science of war. It goes on to say that every Marine has an individual responsibility to study the profession of arms. Self-directed study in the art and science of war is at least equal in importance to maintaining physical condition and should receive at least equal time. The Marine Corps Association understands the critical importance of ensuring that Marines are as mentally ready for combat as they are physically ready. That is why we offer an entire page dedicated to wargaming on our website. We have recommendations for both tabletop board games as well as computer games. And for Marine Corps Association members, there is a discount code for Wargame Design Studios that you can find on the website. Wargames are a great way to immerse yourself in history and to put yourself in the shoes of the great leaders of history. Go beyond guided instruction and experience the thrill of wargaming. Check us out at mca-marines.org forward slash decision dash making dash exercises forward slash wargaming dash two. That's mca-marines.org forward slash decision dash making dash exercises forward slash wargaming dash two. Take your training to the next level. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.